This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rockstar with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. Last night, a top Iranian military official was killed in a U.S. drone strike ordered by President Trump. Breaking news from the Middle East, where a U.S. drone strike killed one of Iran's most powerful military leaders overnight. It's a major escalation in the ongoing conflict between the U.S. and Iran. The Pentagon says its drone strike targeting Major General Qasem Soleimani was aimed at deterring future attacks by Iran. It's part of President Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign against the Iranians. There was a devastating scene. I mean, the photos have been posted. Crumpled metal, body parts, a severed hand with a ring that pretty much looks like a ring uh, Qasem Soleimani used to wear. Our colleague Michael Gordon covers national security. The attack against Iranian General Qasem Soleimani took place on an airport road in Baghdad, where Soleimani had just arrived on a flight from Damascus. Qasem Soleimani, it should be noted, was coming in and out of Baghdad rather openly. So he must have assumed that like the many other times he went in and out of Baghdad, he would be safe, but this time he miscalculated. Soleimani was long an enemy of the U.S., but the White House said they had a specific reason to kill him now. Today on the show, the killing of Iran's top military leader, Qasem Soleimani, and the week of conflict that led to his death. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, January 3rd. Let's talk about the man who was the main target of this airstrike, Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani was the guy in charge of the foreign paramilitary force that was in charge of projecting Iranian influence in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and throughout the Middle East. Would there be um, an American counterpart that you could compare him to? Not that I can think of, because he would sort of be uh, the head of the the Special Operations Command, the head of a sort of an 18th Airborne Corps, and maybe the head of the CIA all put together. He combined a number of roles, a covert role, an overt role, clandestine military role, a diplomatic political role. He had the confidence of the supreme leader himself to act in that capacity. I remember once when I was on a trip with Secretary of State John Kerry, he was trying to draw the Iranian foreign minister Zervad Zarif into a discussion about Syria. And Zarif said rather candidly, look, I don't have authority for Syria. And the subtext was the guy who's really the power broker there is Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani's path to becoming that power broker began during a brutal war in the Middle East. He made his mark during the Iran-Iraq War, where he was a commander of the Revolutionary Guards 41st Division. That was in the 1980s? 
Yeah, and it was an eight-year bloody horrible war that everybody says was probably the worst thing the Iranians ever endured. I once talked to Ryan Crocker, who was the U.S. ambassador in Iraq, and he said, really, Qasem Soleimani was shaped by this experience of this World War I-style conflict where the losses were horrendous. And he said no one could go through that and not be affected by that. Ryan Crocker's view is that coming out of that war, Soleimani's perspective is if Iran couldn't achieve an outright military victory over Iraq, at least it had to create a situation where Iraq was weak, divided, and susceptible to Iranian influence. That war shaped Soleimani's worldview, and it also shaped his career. Soleimani won acclaim for his battlefield achievements, and a decade later was appointed to lead the Quds Force, a sort of special operations component of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. In that role, Soleimani became the architect of Iran's Middle East strategy and built Iranian-friendly militias around the region. After American forces invaded Iraq in 2003, and I was a reporter embedded for that and spent a lot of time there, and Iran's project was pretty much to tie down the United States so they could never be a threat to Iran and to drive them out of the Middle East. And so a variety of militias were formed, including Qatayb Hezbollah, and Iran uh, trained these militias and equipped them with a very deadly form of uh, IED called an EFP, Explosively Formed Penetrator, that armored Humvees could not stop. And in Baghdad, this was a particularly lethal threat. And the goal was basically to bloody the Americans, turn the American public against the war, and get the Americans to leave. And according to Pentagon estimates, more than 600 American service personnel were killed by these militias deemed to be supported by Qasem Soleimani. How did the U.S. start to view him during this time? As an enemy and as an adversary. General Petraeus was the top American commander there. He had a practice of sending weekly letters to then Defense Secretary Gates. And so what Petraeus would write to Gates, he called him a truly evil figure. So he's long been an odious figure in the eyes of the Pentagon. The question they've always asked at the Pentagon is, would it help or hurt to take him out? And by that, they mean, would it spur more retaliation against the United States, or would it prevent it? According to Michael's reporting, earlier administrations were wary that killing Soleimani could lead to a wider conflict with Iran and sought to avoid that. And in recent years, the U.S. and Soleimani actually shared a common goal. One thing that's really important to uh, understand is that uh, while Qasem Soleimani was a uh, nemesis of the United States during the U.S. war in Iraq, Throughout the whole fight against the Islamic State, the U.S. and Qasem Soleimani essentially had a truce. The effective truce was between Iran and the U.S. as both countries fought against ISIS in Iraq. ISIS was seen as a threat to American interests, to Iraqi interests, and to Iranian interests. And so American forces returned to Iraq in 2014 to advise the Iraqi army, to train the Iraqi army, to help the Iraqi army reclaim lost territory from Islamic State and support them with air power, Iran also helped the Iraqis in a parallel effort. They had teams flying drones in Iraq. They sent advisors to work with the militias they created, and they also engaged in operations against 
Islamic State. The U.S. and Iran weren't working together in Iraq, but they were basically leaving each other alone as they fought a common enemy. They were de-conflicted throughout this entire period from middle of 2014 until just a few days ago. These militias never went after American troops, and Qasem Soleimani never authorized to do so. By the same token, the Americans never went after these militia leaders, and they didn't go after Qasem Soleimani. They focused their efforts on defeating ISIS. When ISIS began to weaken, so did the informal truce between the U.S. and Iran's militias in Iraq. And that breakdown came to a head this past week. So it was a rapid-fire series of events. A week ago today, the Kataib Hezbollah militia, according to the Americans, fired uh, more than 30 rockets on a base near Kirkuk that killed an American contractor and wounded four American soldiers. And this was done by a militia that Qasem Soleimani supports. And that crossed a red line for the uh, Trump administration. They don't like to talk about red lines, but they had a red line. And it was if harm comes to Americans. And Secretary Pompeo had articulated that in a December 13th statement. In response to that red line being crossed, the U.S. retaliated against the Iranian-backed militia. Two days later, the U.S. used F-15 strike eagles to carry out a bombing attack against five Kataib Hezbollah sites. This is the militia backed by Iran. That was followed by an angry demonstration outside the gates of the American embassy in Baghdad. Then they broke into a badging office. They never were a serious threat to get inside the compound, but they certainly created a bunch of mayhem, and it took uh, quite a while for the Iraqi government to get security forces there to end that situation. And then, last night, the Americans made a dramatic move. They used a drone to kill Soleimani. What that move could mean for the Middle East and the U.S.? That's after the break. Welcome back. As tensions escalated this past week between the U.S. and Iran, the U.S. set in motion plans to kill Soleimani. I think it's safe to say the U.S. had Qasem Soleimani in its sights for quite a while, could have pulled the trigger at any time, and decided to do so last night. He was easy pickings for a Reaper drone that wanted to take out what they call a high-value target. This morning, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo explained why the U.S. ordered the airstrike on Soleimani. He was actively plotting in the region to take actions, a big action as he described it, that would have put dozens, if not hundreds, of American lives at risk. What they've said is they had intelligence that there were going to be further attacks against Americans and that absent this attack, those Iranian-inspired attacks might have gone forward and endangered Americans. It must be said they've presented no proof of this. They've disclosed no particulars about whether such attacks were, in fact, planned. After the strike, Iran's Supreme National Security Council issued a statement warning of retaliation at, quote, the right time and place. What could happen next is any number of things. Iran is vowing to retaliate, and there's an extremely high likelihood that they, in fact, will retaliate, probably by using terrorism and by taking other actions. What form it will take 
is not yet clear. The State Department's already issued a travel security alert advising all American citizens to leave Iraq. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my years in Iraq, and I've started coming there in the in 2003 with the invasion, there was never anything like that. That even through the war years, they weren't saying all Americans need to leave Iraq. So, in other words, they're saying we can't protect you. Mm -hmm. And the Pentagon is clearly apprehensive about the potential repercussions. They've sent a battalion of the 82nd Airborne to Kuwait to act as a kind of security force and bolster, if necessary, the Marines who are already at the embassy complex. And I would suspect uh, more forces are going to be deployed in the Middle East. So, does that mean we could be headed for even more military conflict? Well, I think that when a Shia militia fires rockets at a base knowing Americans are present, from an American perspective, that's an act of war. And when the United States kills a senior Iranian military commander riding in a convoy on an airport road, from an Iranian perspective, that's an act of war. I think both sides think that the other side has already begun hostilities, and the question is how far this is going to go. Today, the U.S. said it was deploying an additional 3,500 troops to the region. And this afternoon at a press conference in Florida. As president, my highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. President Trump said Soleimani was a brutal military leader who had provoked the U.S. and other nations. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war and that the U.S. is not interested in toppling the Iranian government. We do not seek regime change. However, the Iranian regime's aggression in the region, including the use of proxy fighters to destabilize its neighbors, must end, and it must end now. That's all for today, Friday, January 3rd. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are myself, Ryan Knudsen, and Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Annie Minoff, Ricky Nivesky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, and Rob Zipko. Our senior producer is Pia Gadkari. Annie Rostrasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole. Special thanks this week to Sam Baer. Our theme music is by Haley Shaw. Additional music this week from Bobby Lord, Peter Leonard, and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Monday.